Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a viral immunologist discusses her research that may help improve the lives of people with Kaposi sarcoma. The immune system is what makes you sick, feel sick, so mast cells make you feel very sick. So think about allergy, but now a thousandfold. A social worker and an advanced practice nurse talk about the dynamics of intimate partner violence and the role of medical professionals in helping to identify people who are affected. Women's health nurse practitioners, women's health physician assistants, obstetrician gynecologists, folks that have exclusively women in their population, I think they tend to ask about it more often. In the primary care settings, it becomes a little bit more difficult. A plastic and reconstructive surgeon and former Navy officer tells about some of the medical advances that come from the military battlefield. All that and a selection from The Healing Muse right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore medicine, science, and health with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll discuss intimate partner violence and how to identify people who are affected. Then we'll hear about medical advances that come from the military battlefield. But first, we'll talk with a researcher specializing in viral immunology about the body's natural reaction to allergies and how that may help people with Kaposi sarcoma. Medical advances come from science, and today I want to share with you the story of some scientific work being done here at Upstate that has the potential to improve the lives of people with Kaposi sarcoma. With me in the HealthLink on Air studio today is Dr. Christine King. She's a viral immunologist in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at Upstate. Welcome, Dr. King. Thank you very much for having me. Now, if I understand correctly, your lab is focused on several viral diseases that affect endothelial cells. That's correct. What are endothelial cells? So endothelial cells are the cells that line our blood vessels. So they create the little tubes that blood can flow through. And they're very, they're evolutionarily ancient. As you can imagine, they would have to be if they're going to take blood around the body. And they're really resistant, um, more so than many other cells, to becoming cancerous or cancer-like. And they're very tightly controlled because they have this really important function of transporting nutrients and blood around the body. Do the cells themselves move within the blood vessels or do they kind of stay in the same they stay in the same place, so they might they they undergo a process called angiogenesis, which is our term for forming new blood vessels. So they can congregate and they make tubes essentially. So it's just like if you took a tube from your plumbing, it looks exactly like that, but the tube structure is made up of all the endothelial cells put side by side. So they make like almost like a road that then gets encircled and creates the tube. Huh. And so they're really they're really quite neat cells. And you said they're resistant to cancer. They don't often or ever? They um, don't often. There are not very many cancers of endothelial cells. And so they appear to have this sort of uh, maybe a better break mechanism for control. We're not really sure why, but we know that there are very few cancers of endothelial cells. And so for us, diseases that are characterized by faulty endothelial cells are really interesting to us. And that's sort of what my lab focuses on. That's why or how we can look at multiple viruses because we have that one point of commonality. And okay. so we tend to focus on dengue virus so dengue fever, dengue hemorrhagic shock, and dengue, um, dengue hemorrhagic fever and dengue shock syndrome, and Kaposi sarcoma. So Kaposi sarcoma is caused by a herpes virus, KSHV, um, in the same family as cytomegalovirus, EBV, so everybody's had EBV if you had mono when you were a kid. So it's in the same family. And, the, and Kaposi sarcoma and dengue they mess with the endothelial cells? They both. So dengue is known in more severe forms of it to have this uh, leakage of the endothelial cells. So the people die if they die because of this leakiness. Okay. Uh, in Kaposi sarcoma, 
these endothelial cells are even further messed up, if you want to say. So they proliferate uncontrollably. They don't make their tubes properly anymore. So the tubes are very leaky, like we see in dengue, but we don't know if the mechanism of the leakiness is the same because they wow. don't form them properly. Um, and the lesion, that's what we call um, Kaposi's sarcoma, the visual aspect is the lesion. Um, those are full, those lesions are full of inflammatory infiltrate. So it's different than dengue, which is a, sort of a whole body manifestation of vascular leak or certain areas, eyes, gut. Whereas Kaposi's sarcoma it is more focally um, present in individuals. Like in one area or something? Okay. And it can be multiple areas in the body. Huh. Um, but most of the damage, what we see occurring, is in that area where you can see the lesion. Now, Kaposi's sarcoma, I've heard that in, a, uh, in relation to AIDS patients, that it's a, a risk for AIDS patients. But it, it, can you explain what it is? Kaposi's sarcoma is a disease, as we talked about, of endothelial cells that is present, often present, in HIV patients progress to AIDS but not only in those patients. So this virus, like EBV and CMV, exists in the population. So in North America, about five to 10% of our population carry it. In other parts of the world, it's much more prevalent. So in Africa, 50 to 70% of people, by the time they reach puberty, carry this virus. And so they have disease in the absence of HIV. Okay. So it can occur in both. And when I try when I ex try to explain to someone, so visually, what does it look like? For those of us that are my age, the older crowd, if you saw the movie Philadelphia with Tom Hanks, that is all about an AIDS patient who was recognized as AIDS because he has a very clear spot of Kaposi's sarcoma on his forehead. Okay. So it's that disease that we're talking about. But prevalent, it can happen in transplant patients. It can happen in the absence of HIV. It's really quite prevalent in older Mediterranean men. Okay. Nobody has any idea why. Um, so it's not just linked to HIV. So when scientists are studying Kaposi sarcoma, they've thought that the endothelial cells were what was causing the inflammation, right? Yes. But you had another idea. So I had a different us. idea. So my training, I, over the years, I have tried to hone my training to understand inflammation in a broader context and understand sort of the evolutionary origins of inflammation and, and how that directs everything else. So inflammation, when you feel sick from the cold or a flu, it's the immune response that's making you feel sick. It's not the virus. Viruses don't, their goal is to not make you sick. Their goal is to simply produce babies. That's what they want to do. They want to make progeny and they want to put it out into the world to continue the species. Our system goes, well, no, we're not going to allow that and fights against it. And that's what makes us feel crappy. So I sort of looked at this disease coming from a background of a immunologist that chose to train in both virology and immunology so I could look at pathogenesis because it's immune mediated from both points of view. And so when I looked at this disease, I said, well, endothelial cells are not what an immunologist would term as a pro-inflammatory cell. They're responders to inflammation. So they need to take the signal and then amplify it or put out a different signal to say, okay, we got a problem, we got to bring in the troops. They don't initiate that. Instead, their companion cells, mast cells, um, which are potent pro-inflammatory cells that exist in the tissues, sit next to the endothelial cells, and these two cells interact to govern each other. So mast cells, when they're activated, tell the endothelial cells, okay, it's time to open up and bring in the guys. And then the endothelial cell, okay, so now I'm gonna add to this. So I sort of step so back. So let me back you up. Yeah. Mast cells, or what What do mast cells do normally? Normally, um, so that's a really good question. Uh, when people think about mast cells, they automatically think allergy, asthma, and anaphylaxis. 
So the people allergic with the reaction, right? Okay. The people with the bees um, allergy that when they get stung, they can die and they need an EpiPen. So you can imagine. So a as a person who trained with these cells, right? To come into this disease, you look at where the lesions are. They're all areas where mast cells are really prevalent. Um, the disease is entirely dependent, not just on the virus, but on inflammation. So if you take the inflammation away, the disease goes away. So it's not a real true cancer in that way. Because in cancer, that doesn't happen. Right. So we sort of looked at it and said, well, we have these really pro-inflammatory cells, mast cells, that are all in the same area that we know evolved and sort of control endothelial cells. So I sort of took that and went, you know, I think that these cells are involved in this driving this disease. So instead of just focusing on allergy and asthma and anaphylaxis, but using that in terms of these are the only cells in the body that will kill you in 15 minutes. Just like that. I mean, if you, don't, if you don't stop an anaphylactic reaction, these patients will die. That shows you how powerful, how powerful. they are. So now... We have a disease that's governed by inflammation in all the areas where these cells are. And I sort of went, well, I wonder. And that was the beginning. And most of the time, we're, never, we're not right, or we're partially right. Um, so I sort of put together a team of scientists from across the country to, and, to ask these questions. And I was really fortunate enough to work with a good pathologist at Ohio State, Leona Ayers, who sort of took me on board and said, okay, you're junior, I'm gonna look. Let's see if you're right. And it was incredible. So mast cells are there in these patients in the areas where the disease is. They're highly activated. I can measure it in the patient's blood, independent of any time, which is really unusual, because you have to remember, if these cells can kill you, what's the way to control them? To make their mediators, the things that will kill you, short half-life. So it doesn't last very long. So normally, if you're measuring their activation, you have to get them exactly when they go off. But we sort of took random samples and said, oh, all right, well, let's just see. And the levels were incredibly high, suggesting we have this constant activation going on. Um, so that's sort of where I stepped in and went, yeah, I think, I think the virologist maybe missed an important piece. Um, let me ask you, do mast cells go where the Kaposi sarcoma is, or does Kaposi develop where there's a bunch of mast cells? These are good questions, and these are questions that we're trying to address. I think it's a bit of both. I think that, in general, I tend to teach and think that things are relatively that simple. So it's usually a combination of mechanisms. So I think that, so mast cells are in all tissues in your body. So they're in the brain, they're in the heart, they're in the lip, they're everywhere. Um, we know that they increase in number in areas where there's KS, those lesions. So I think there's uh, two things going on. I think that the KS is taking advantage of the inflammatory signal because if you can't beat them, you might as well join them, right? Um, and that as a result of that activation and what the virus does to those endothelial cells, they then put out uh, signals, we call them chemokine signals, to recruit in more mast cells. Because again, if inflammation is necessary for the disease, then that's a good thing and they wanna bring in more of it. And so we think that there's local proliferation maybe and an influx of new mast cells and that and this sort of led us to think that, okay, perhaps if we stop this, we can help resolve the disease. The current treatment for KS, um, so KS in HIV patients, when you control your HIV, most patients recover. But there's a really significant subset, 20% in the country, and that appears to be rising, that never clear their KS, even when they control their HIV and they're no longer immunocompromised. And so... What we wanted to sort of understand was, does this mean anything? Can we, can we modulate um, the disease by hitting it at its genesis? So right now we cut it out or we give chemotherapy to drugs. Most of the time the disease comes back. So it doesn't really work. And it's not a real cancer. So a chemotherapeutic drug is not gonna work that well. 
So instead of hitting the end point, which sort of is what we've had to date for treatments for m most diseases, we are sort of trying to work back to, okay, if we can identify some of the drivers, some of the promoters, and we can stop that, then we prevent the disease from happening and we regress it if it is there. And so that's what I sort of went on. And serendipitously, we were, I was asked to consult on a um, HIV patient that had Kaposi's sarcoma and his Kaposi's sarcoma was getting worse and nobody really understood what was going on. And, and so they brought me in and sort of presented the case here at Upstate. And I, you know, told them about the work that I was doing, my hypothesis on mast cells, what I thought was going on, and that, you know, I would like to speak to the patient and I think we should treat him this way. And so they went, okay, let's, let's get you in and see if we can help this person. Um, and so what we, what we didn't know was that in patients with mast cell activation, okay, and we could do a whole nother section on mast cell activation disease. Um, they have symptoms. So this, as we said, the immune system is what makes you sick, feel sick. So mast cells make you feel very sick. So think about allergy, but now a thousandfold. How crappy you feel with allergies, but now you've got major dumping of mediators from these cells, right? So they cause bone pain, they cause eye pain, nausea, diarrhea, migraine, vomiting, uh, so hives. That's, with Kaposi sarcoma, that's what you're dealing with? So this is what we didn't know, because when you wow. look in a chart, people, they have HIV. Most of the patients we see here have HIV, so they have lesions, and that's about all the doctor says. Because he's like, well, or they're like, well, that person has HIV. But specific symptoms are very important to understanding what's going on in the patient. I really pay attention to symptoms, details. And so... I had the opportunity of spending quite a bit of time with this patient. And, you know, in my very first interviews, it was very apparent that he had almost all of the symptoms of mast cell activation syndrome. Massive mast cell activation syndrome. This man felt horrible. He had night sweats. He had GERD, so esophageal reflux. He had hives. He had many allergies to medications. He had bone pain. He had eye pain. He had... He was a mess. And so... I told him what I thought was going on, and we agreed to move forward. And so I just really simply took what we knew about controlling mast cell mediators in asthma and allergy and applied it, which is much the same, is the beginning of what we do when we're treating mast cell activation disease patients. And so I gave them H1 and H2 blockers, same ones that patient can go and buy off the shelf. Oh, medication for? Ranitidine, Zyrtec. Okay. Right? H1 and H2 blockers. So these histamine antihistamines have been around for years and years. Old people can take them. Babies can take them. People can take them every day. And co combine that with uh, a drug called Montelukast, which is given to asthma patients. It controls another class of mediators that mast cells produce. Mm -hmm. And in combination that uh, with that, vitamin C, which is known to be a mast cell stabilizer. And so how did he our do? vitamins are really important. Oh, okay. Um, he did fabulous. Within two weeks, his return appointment, he had already seen regression. He had already resolved many of his mast cell activation disease symptoms. Over the next three months, he continued to resolve. His lesions shrunk. He felt better. He lost the edema weight. He told me he felt the best he'd felt in years and years and years. And then he was excited that he might actually be able to wear shorts now because wow. people wouldn't point. That's got to be gratifying as a scientist to see it was the incredible. impact of some of your work. Yeah, it was incredible. I really felt like the hours and days and years that we've spent actually translated into something that was useful. Well, I find your work fascinating, and I Thank appreciate you. you coming in to share it with our listeners. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, my guest has been viral immunologist Dr. Christine King from Upstate Medical University's uh, Microbiology and Immunology. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, what you need to know about intimate partner violence. 
on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today we're going to talk about intimate partner violence with Dr. Jenny Cronin, the Director of Graduate Nursing at Lemoyne College, and Social Worker Lauren Cunningham, the Prevention and Education Director at Vera House. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Hi. Thanks for having us. The uh, prevalence of intimate partner violence, how, how often do you see this? Well, we know that intimate partner violence is incredibly common. Um, according to a national survey that was done, the National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey, um, about 36% of female-identified people and about 28% of male-identified people um, have experienced rape, physical violence, and or stalking by an intimate partner in their lifetime. So pretty pretty high that's numbers. That's a lot. A quarter to yes. a third? I mean, that's a lot. Yes, yes. Very, very prevalent. Um, um so you mentioned, uh, I mean, rape or sexual violence, stalking, I mean, all of that counts as intimate partner violence. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then we also know that, that people may experience other forms of ab- abuse that don't rise to the level of being actual physical violence. So I would imagine the numbers are even higher for people that are affected by those forms of abuse. Yep. Psychological abuse, or verbal abuse, or mo- verbal okay. abuse. Mm-hmm. Financial uh-huh. abuse. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about the dynamics of intimate partner violence. How does how does this begin? Well, what we um, know about intimate partner violence is that there's often a dynamic of power and control in the relationship. So one person seeking to maintain power over the other person, and that that power is maintained through a variety of different tactics, like Jenny and I just mentioned that can be physical violence, uh, sexual violence, verbal and emotional abuse, uh, financial exploitation, um, isolating a person, keeping them from people that they love and care about that might be able to help or support them, um, blaming them for the abuse, saying that it's it's their fault. Um, So, and, and any type of um, action that puts someone in fear for their safety or their children's safety could be a form of abuse. But in a uh, beginning of a relationship, um, maybe those things aren't as obvious. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, how do you, how, I mean, nobody wants to connect with someone who's going to be abusive to them. How do you weed that person out of your life before it gets to that point? I think that what what often happens is that there's a relationship that's established prior to the abusive behavior um, coming to light, and that what we often see is that there's an escalation of abuse, um, typically starting out more with the emotional and verbal forms of abuse, and then sometimes escalating from there to the physical and sexual violence. So that it's not, I often use the example, like if somebody hauls off and slaps you on the first date, you're probably not going to go out on a second date, right? Right. Um, but so that, that there's often this very kind of subtle escalation that we see. And so there may be things that aren't that noticeable right. about a person's behavior, really. It can be very subtle and coercive. It, it can build gradually until there's uh, an event. But by that time, you're invested in the relationship. Right. There's other things happening. So it's not so easy to remove yourself by that point in time. Um, can you tell me, how would someone know that their coworker or friend or neighbor or whatever is in an abusive relationship? Um, is it always that obvious? I think the reality of it is that it's often not obvious um, to people. Um, survivors of domestic violence often, um, and their and their partners who act abusively, often go through great lengths to try and hide the abuse and, and not let others know that it's happening. Um, but there are some signs that you could look out for. Um, of course, any injury that, that a person has sustained could potentially be a red flag for intimate partner violence. But also, um, 
you know, someone talking about that maybe in their relationship there's a lot of fighting or arguing or somebody who's, you know, a relationship where maybe the person has ended the relationship and gone back maybe multiple times. Um, things like someone maybe not having access to finances or always having to check in with their partner. I think I think um, a lot of us have probably had experiences in our lives where we see maybe a friend who is, you know, always checking in or having to let their partner know or ask their partner if they can do something. Um, those would definitely be red flags. Also, how people act when they're with their partner and when they're not with their partner. So do you see kind of two different presentations of a person when their partner's around or not? So those might be some things to look out for. But again, uh, I, I think oftentimes when people do find out that someone's a survivor of uh, intimate partner violence, they're often surprised to, right. to learn that. Well, you meant, you said survivors often try to hide the abuse. Why Why is that? Sometimes there's shame associated with it, self-blame that's associated with it. Um, people don't readily admit these things, and and they don't often talk about them, so it can be difficult with it. It seems it'd be a very sensitive situation. So if if you notice some of these like red flags in a in a friend or coworker or neighbor, um, how would you go about helping? That can be a, a really difficult um, process to navigate for people, um, and I think the first thing that, that people want to be conscious of is the, the safety concerns that are there for someone who may be experiencing intimate partner violence, because often there is an incredible investment in keeping that hidden, and partners who act abusively will often threaten if you tell anyone, you know, I'll hurt you, I'll kill you, I'll hurt the kids. Um, and so if you are going to, to have a conversation with someone, the absolute most important thing is that you do that in private, not in front of other people, in front of the children. And what we often encourage is um, expressing concern for someone, say, you know, I've, I've maybe noticed this or seen this and I'm, I'm worried about you, is everything mm -hmm. okay? Um, and oftentimes people may not feel comfortable disclosing initially or ever. Uh, the disclosure, of course, isn't the goal. The goal is safety for people. And so if someone maybe doesn't feel comfortable acknowledging what's going on, saying to them, you know, I just want you to know that I'm, I'm here for you no matter what. I'm here to help. To offer that unconditional, non-judgmental support, I think, is the best thing that we can do for people. And that can just plant a seed. Maybe the person's not ready to talk about it right then and there, but if they know that you're um, concerned about them, it plants a seed. They can come back to you later on at a different time when maybe they're feeling a little bit stronger and talk about it at that point in time. And right. I, I also think there's a lot of normalization of the abuse that goes on for people. Maybe they've grown up in a family where this was their life experience. And so that planting a seed piece might be the first time that anyone's ever said to mm -hmm. them, hey, what's going on here doesn't seem okay. Uh, so I think that's that's a real opportunity there to just kind of crack that window open that, that maybe maybe it doesn't have to be this way. It could just get them thinking that mm -hmm. this is not right. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Uh, Jenny Cronin. She's the director of graduate nursing at LeMoyne College and social worker Lauren Cunningham, um, the prevention and education director at Vera House. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the role that health and medical professionals have in identifying intimate partner violence. Dr. Cronin? So it's it's really hard. There's um, there's since since 2011, the Institute of Medicine said, you know, we really think this is such a pervasive problem. All women should be screened for intimate partner violence, um, and it's taken some time. But but this universal screening of women has has taken hold in the medical community. I think. For some women, um, for some providers, it's a little bit, I'm not going to say it's easier, it's not an easy conversation to have, but um, women's health nurse practitioners, women's health physician assistants, obstetrician gynecologists, folks that have uh, exclusively women in their population, I think they, they, they tend to ask about it more often. Um, in the primary care settings, it becomes a little bit more difficult. I don't think 
that uh, primary care providers are as comfortable with screening. There's other things that take time away from. Um, this is, it's not a asking the question. You need to have some time. You need privacy with the patient. You need to have some time to talk about it. You need a little time to educate about it. Um, there are other things that compete for time in the primary care setting, sure. you know, so it can be complex. Um, but well, I th- what, what does, if I may interrupt, what does the screening consist of? So the screening is not difficult. There's, there's new uh, models for this universal education, screening and education. Um, the screening tools, you should use a valid, validated screening tool, but they're not, they're not complex. It can be as simple as four questions. So I like to use the, the HITS uh, tool, which is, is, is anyone hurting you? Um, are they insulting you? Are they threatening you? Are they screaming at you? So it's it's just uh, simple tools, but I think you know having the relationship with patients, taking the time to ask, is is the hardest step. Um, I think sometimes providers are afraid of opening Pandora's box. What if what if they say yes? Keep in mind, many women go through this. It's not. It'd be easy if somebody showed up with a black eye. You would want to ask about that. But that's not what happens. And so asking every woman about it, incorporating it into regular care um, is actually kind of simple. I think what can, be, what can be difficult is what do I do if somebody says yes? What do they do if somebody says yes? Well, there's, there's these great systems that are in place. I think if you have a practice where somebody's very comfortable, we call these champions, where they... Um, have a background in education about intimate partner violence, they're comfortable with it. Um, The next step would be bringing in people like Lauren for the staff to do education. That does two things. It it provides the staff with education, but it also provides them with a visual contact. They they remember Lauren from Beer House. That's a good resource. Um, If somebody discloses that they they are um, in a in a violent relationship or an abusive relationship, um, having a system developed for those people, having a safety plan, you know, what needs to be done right then and there. Um, When we talk to students about this uh, together in the classroom, I always say it doesn't need to be overwhelming because I I can ask the question, I can, I can, if the woman discloses, I have resources. So I might not be able to help that woman right then and there, but I can call Lauren and in a private setting have that person talk with Lauren or another service agency that helps. And so it's, it's really identifying it, having a plan in place. If there's a safety issue right then and there, having a plan in place, having resources and um, right in place so that staff can work with those resources right then and there. And knowing what's available in the community. No, that's the biggest part, to me anyway, is knowing what's available in the community and how the systems work because they don't always work the same. But having one one uh, community service agency that you can call, um, they will then refer you on. So I always would refer to Vera House for things like that. I think another thing that's really important, though, it's not just about screening um, it's also about follow-up, and so newer models are looking, if it's universal, it's, it's asking the question, maybe planting the seat on the first visit, but if women come back to health care a lot for, the, for this, themselves and for their children, so it's, it's planting that seat and asking on the first visit, but asking on other visits so that they realize, yep, this is, this, you know, I just, I incorporate it as a regular part of care, you know. Well, oh, you, you mentioned uh, women, but um, at the very beginning, Lauren, you talked about how 28% of men mm-hmm. have been in a relationship that included some violence. Yes, and so right now, the, the, the research in this field is still pretty limited, I would say. So the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force has a, a B level recommendation for screening women of childbearing age. There's just not enough evidence at this point for screening, universal screening for men, but I don't know if at some point we will be there. And when you look at um, data um, related to lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people, they experience even higher rates than heterosexual women of intimate partner violence. And so I think there's 
I think that's where the field's headed. We're just probably not there yet. Right. Well, we've seen and we've read a lot about this um, Me Too movement where women have revealed workplace harassment and discrimination. Do you think women coming forward about harassment helps other women come forward about physical violence? Are they connected? I think that the Me Too movement has had an impact for survivors of many different forms of violence to be coming forward and and speaking up. And so whether it's sexual harassment, intimate partner violence, sexual violence, child sexual abuse, um, I think that's opened doors for for a lot of people. Women are feeling much more empowered, I think, since the Me Too movement to speak up. Good. Well, that's good to know. Well, thank you so much for this information. My guests have been Dr. Ginny Cronin from the uh, from Lemoyne College, graduate nursing, and social worker Lauren Cunningham from um, Fear House. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, a plastic and reconstructive surgeon talks about medical advances from the battlefield. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. From infection control and treating blood loss to the ambulance transport system, many of today's medical innovations have their origins on the battlefield. Today, we're going to hear about some of those advances from a plastic and reconstructive surgeon who's a graduate of Upstate Medical University and who served in the Navy. Dr. Patrick Basil joins me by telephone. Thank you, Dr. Basil. Thank you for the invitation. Now, HealthLink listeners may remember your name because we interviewed you back in December 2012 after you were part of the first bilateral or double arm transplant. Um, Do you know how that patient is doing six years later? Uh, He is doing wonderfully. Uh, He is uh, able to drive his cars and do all the things he loves to do and has had uh, gained really good function of both uh, the limbs. And we are just very proud of him and happy that everything worked out. Oh, that's amazing. And I I read that there was another service member who received a double arm transplant a couple years ago. So, um, Correct. Um, Every year uh, there has been more and more. Um, And uh, the hardest part is finding good donors because you have to match, you know, size, color, gender, uh, and then, of course, all the uh, immunohistocompatibility things that, you know, you won't reject it. So it's pretty hard to find a good donor, and the waiting list is pretty long. Wow. Wow. Well, now, you, uh, during your time, because you were at the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center, um, and Correct. I read a biography that you were a leader during that time in wounded warrior care. So can you talk a little bit about what, what was involved and what types of injuries you were um, treating? Absolutely. So uh, I initially started at the National Naval Medical Center, which then became Walter Reed when it combined with Walter Reed Army, and it's the largest military medical treatment facility in the world. Uh, Right when I got there in 2009, uh, the war in Afghanistan kind of launched, and we were seeing a heavy flow of incoming wounded. Uh, Aside from Brook Army in Texas, which took all of the burns, we took all of the uh, blast trauma from Afghanistan and Iraq. And... The interesting thing is people uh, were surviving these horrific uh, explosions more than they were in previous years because of improvement in body armor and um, forward surgical teams and and advancement and many different things. So when they were presenting to us for reconstruction, uh, we were really having to think outside the box and how to recreate the algorithm for treating them. So myself, alongside two or three other amazing surgeons, really kind of rewrote the book on uh, wounded warrior care and, and uh, military treat, uh, treatment of military wounds. Uh, and we, were, we had the opportunity to travel around the world and share our, our data and our experience with uh, people all over. Wow. 
Well, you recently uh, were in Syracuse visiting the Upstate campus to give a lecture about the medical lessons that come from the battlefield. So let's talk. Absolutely. Let's talk about what we've learned from, and this goes back decades, centuries. Oh yeah. Uh, centuries. So, you know, back in, um, uh, and I really loved your intro because you said most, uh, a lot of our uh, advancements in medicine happened during the time of uh, war, and it's absolutely true, from blood transfusions to the trauma system to penicillin, uh, those all were kind of the result of having to keep people alive and pushing research and development. So um, what has happened mostly in the past recent years, uh, you know, from the time of Vietnam and Korea, with, uh, I'm sure you'll, you remember the show MASH, that started uh, having really surgeons right on the front line being able to patch up wounded uh, service members right when they get hurt and then kind of get them back home to, for definitive treatment. Um, and then also, at currently at Walter Reed and right across the street at the National Institute of Health, there's a lot of research going on in uh, adult autologous stem cell transfer, um, immunomodulation, a lot of the things we did with the uh, double arm transplant regarding um, immunosuppression. So having those uh, ability and resources to kind of push medicine is amazing. And unfortunately, a lot of that happens at the time of war due to necessity. So the traumatic wounds of the wars of modern times, do they differ substantially from the wounds going back to like the Civil War? Because the, the weapons are different. Uh, even, well, even as much as far back as uh, Vietnam, because the, uh, well, first off, people are living, right? Instead of being blown up in the Civil War or even World War One, World War Two, where they would bleed out on the battlefield. Uh, people are surviving through the use of, you know, tourniquets, forward surgical uh, units. Um, the other thing is that the, the uh, intensity of the blast now is just so tremendous. Uh, there's also dealing with biological and chemical weapons as well. So it really kind of had us think outside the box on how to treat these wounds. Um, but, like, just take, for instance, in Vietnam era, if you got an injury to your leg, really at all, that looks like it wouldn't be able to be kind of salvaged, you got an above-the-knee amputation. Uh, and I don't know if you've ever seen an amputee with above-the-knee amputation. It's hard because they don't have their knee joint. Mm -hmm. Now, if we have someone injured and they have the knee joint intact, <clears throat> they're, they're going to save vital components to uh, keep them as a below-the-knee amputation. And when they get back to Walter Reed, we'll do what we call a flap surgery, where we move tissue from one part of the body to their lower extremity to keep the length, and now there will be a below-the-knee amputation and be able to do much better. So that's something that's absolutely different than what was done even as far back as in the um, late 1900s. So you, you talked like bleeding out on the battlefield, but um, did tourniquets, did that, did tourniquet use come out of wartime Correct. too? Correct. So okay. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, tourniquets have always been used, but there have been uh, other type of, um, you know, I guess more liberal use of tourniquets cause, uh, than in the civilian sector where I think people were nervous to use them because they didn't want to uh, potentially lose a limb, but it's about saving a life. And so there have been other things such as uh, the ma mask pants or the military anti-shock trousers, which someone who they had a very horrific injury and was losing a lot of blood, you slip these pants on and you kind of uh, increase the pressure and it sort of shunts all the blood toward the core to keep the blood in the brain perfused. Uh, so those were definitely came out of the um, military time and, and had been used in civilian sector as well. Okay. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Patrick Basil. He's an Upstate graduate who served in the Navy and recently received an Outstanding Young Alumnus Award. And we're talking about the lessons that come from the battlefield. So let's talk about um, hospitals and hospital ships, because the Navy has ships that are hospitals, right? Absolutely. So uh, aside from the hospitals, what I was just talking about, uh, we have two main hospital ships. They are the USNS Comfort, which is the Atlantic Fleet uh, hospital ship, and the USNS Mercy, uh, which is the Pacific Fleet hospital ship. They were old oil tankers that were delivered to the Navy um, in the uh, 1970s. 
and were completely gutted on the inside and converted into basically a floating trauma center with everything you could need on it from CAT scans to oxygen to uh, x-ray, surgical suites, intensive care units. Um, and these mobile hospitals are a wonderful tool because they can be really sailed anywhere in the world and placed off of a, um, a coast and be able to take care of our wounded. But we also use them in humanitarian uh, missions, such as when the awful earthquake hit Haiti, uh, a bunch of uh, shipmates sailed down to Haiti, parked off the coast of Haiti, and they would uh, helicopter and, and boat wounded people out to them. And um, it's a, just an amazing tool. Uh, and it, the, the, the most amazing thing is that it can be fully underway in about three days. And wow. you can bring a floating hospital ship directly to uh, an area of conflict. So, so uh, they are a wonderful tool. Do the uh, patients come there to be stabilized, or do they recover there as well? They can recover there as well. Uh, there's a whole intensive care unit. There's, um, there's thousands of beds on, on board. And so uh, a lot of them come there to get uh, life-saving uh, surgeries. Uh, right now, in, in fact, as we talk, uh, U.S., um, USNS Comfort is in South America. I think it might be in Peru. Uh, and they are doing amazing humanitarian work, doing cleft palates, cleft lips, people with congenital deformities, burns, and things like this. So they are on a continuing promise, which is a, uh, a sort of a voyage they take every other year to go down to South America and offer humanitarian assistance to countries that don't have uh, the resources. Oh, interesting. Well, let's look ahead a little bit. You mentioned, you know, biological and chemical warfare. Um, are there things that you think we'll learn from that type of battle? You know, the interesting thing is, I think a lot of what we know, they've been working on for years already. Um, so it's, it's not something that I don't think there's much that we're not aware of. But it's more of the fact that if and when uh, our enemies or, or even terrorists use these weapons against civilians or even service members, how do we handle that? Uh, it's all about being very prepared, prepared for anything. And I think that's what um, our country really excels in, is that we um, are almost always ready for any type of conflict, and uh, we're able to help others around the world who don't have the resources or uh, technology to do that. Yeah, okay. So it, it it's not going to be something that surprises us. There are people already working on, on how to how to combat. Correct. Some, okay. Absolutely. Well, yeah. let's talk before before we end about the sort of the future of plastic surgery, reconstructive surgery. Um, where do you see that headed? So I think uh, it's going to be in regenerative medicine. Um, I think it's going to be when uh, you need a kidney or you need an organ or even tissue fixed uh, from a burn or whatever, that you're we're able to harvest your own cells and then grow your own organs and own tissue uh, that are specific to you. Um, I think, uh, why, you know, in the meantime, I think things like face transplantation, hand transplantation, things like this are going to continue because they are the best option for most people. But ultimately, I think in the future, it's definitely going to be regenerative medicine and learning from other animals in the world that are able to regenerate organs and limbs and figure out how they do it and sort of uh, figure that out for how we can wow. use it in uh, the human world. Now, I've heard that the liver regenerates. Do other organs regenerate on their own? Some do to a degree, uh, okay. and it depends, and, and it's figuring out why. I, we, what we do know is that uh, the, the, uh, the growing fetus or the newborn they have an innate ability to heal wounds that we don't as we get to when we're adults. And a lot of research is being done into why you can operate on someone in utero, make an incision in their skin, and they heal without a scar. You know, so it's, it's things like that that we are trying to figure out how and why. So, uh, but I think the, you know, the big thing is people who need organs like solid um, <clears throat> organs like heart transplant or liver, kidney, things like that, I think that's going to be the uh, on the cusp of... Uh, the upcoming research. Wow. Something to look forward to. That's interesting. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you uh, talking to me. Oh, no problem. Thank you again. My guest has been plastic and reconstructive surgeon, Dr. Patrick Basil. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.
And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Kaz Sussman is a carpenter who lives in a home he built in Oregon, he says, from abandoned poems. His work also appears in Nimrod, Whitefish, Caduceus, among other journals. Here is his very short poem about unending love, dazzled, for Zev. There's no need for foxglove, baby aspirin, oxygen, or antibiotics. Just trust me. All I ask is for you to lean near and whisper, Daz, Daz, let's play, as you did, and oh, how I loved it, way back when you were barely a child and I still held memory's hand. Nudge my better self as you always have, buddy, and know that above all, I hear you. And when my tongue can no longer climb the mountain of speech and my poems lay packed among my tools, peek, buddy, over my shoulder to the path home and see us still there as I still do. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, surgical weight loss options. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Thank you.